You are listening to the First Baptist Church Martin podcast. For more information on our church, visit fbcmartin.org. If you got your Bible, would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are in a study through this New Testament letter this morning. We are going to begin walking through chapter 5. The church in Corinth was established in a city and surrounded by a culture where all forms of sexual immorality and moral depravity were not only common, but these things were celebrated and they were approved. And many of those who made up this church, who were a part of this church, once lived in that kind of lifestyle. They were a part of the culture, and they too were living lives of immorality and moral depravity. And then Paul shows up in their city preaching this good news about a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. Paul talked about a Savior who came into the world, who took their sin on himself, went to the cross, died in their place, was buried, and then rose again on the third day so that through him, by faith in him, they could not only be forgiven of their sin, but they could also receive this this freedom from sin, this, this break free from the power and the dominion that sin once had over them, that this Savior had come to give them a new life, to bring them into relationship with God Himself, the one true God who created them for His glory. And now, by God's power in their life, they would be able to live a life for His glory. And they believed the message that Paul preached. And because they believed, they were saved. And they were born again. And they became, uh, they, they became a part of his church. They soon began to realize that this new life that they had been given in Christ was meant to be lived in the context of Christian community. It was meant to be lived in fellowship with other believers because even though they were now saved, they still lived in the same morally perverse culture that they had been living in beforehand. That hadn't changed. They were still in this world, but they were no longer of the world. Something had happened in them, but yet they found themselves still fighting with temptation, still fighting with the pull of that old life in this new life that they had been given, still wrestling with their old sinful ways and their old sinful nature. And they knew that the only way that they were going to be able to live this life that Christ had called them to live was by his help and his power, but also they needed other believers in their life to encourage them, to pray for them, to support them, to help them stay on track. But then what happens when a believer who's living in that Christian community begins to get off into the weeds again and starts to return to that old life that they were living before they knew Christ. What happens when a believer in Christ begins to live in open rebellion against God? What do you do with that? How does the church respond to that? And that's exactly the thing that Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You found your place in God's Word. Let me invite you to stand this morning as we read in honor of our Lord and his word to us today. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there 
is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. That would be a fellow believer who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or, an, or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what do I have to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And Father, what you have placed before us today is weighty, heavy stuff. We pray for the guidance of your Spirit as we walk through this text this morning. We pray for you to speak. We pray for our hearts and minds to be open to receive your Word with humility and meekness. And God, I pray may your Word uh, do a work in our lives and in your church to purify us to make us as we should be in Christ for the glory of His name. And we pray this in the name of our Savior and our Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So here's the situation in Corinth. There was a man in the church who was in a sexually immoral relationship with his father's wife. That's the way Paul describes it. Now, the wording here is such that the woman involved in this relationship was not the man's natural mother, but rather it was his stepmother. But even still, this man's sin fell into the category of an incestuous relationship. It was a sin so immoral and so depraved that even the Gentiles, a word that Paul uses to describe people outside the church, people who were lost. Paul says, even people who are lost and still of this world know that what this man is doing is wrong. And it's not something that had just happened. This was not something new. It was not a one-time act resulting from a critical error in judgment in a moment of weakness and temptation. 
This was deliberate. This was something that had been going on for a while. In fact, Paul mentions here how he has already addressed this situation and this man's sin in a previous letter that he had sent to the church in Corinth. Now, we don't have that letter in hand. It's not included in the New Testament. But Paul mentions it here, and he talks about how he's already addressed this issue, and yet this sin still continues. The church has done nothing. And the members of this church were treating this man and his sin as if nothing were wrong. As if everything was just fine. Now you've got to understand that this man was not just a church attender. He's not someone who was exploring the claims of Christ. He's never been saved and he's trying to figure out whether or not he wants to follow Jesus. That's not who he was. This was a man who claimed to be a believer. He confessed Christ as his Savior and Lord. He was a member of this community of believers there in Corinth, and yet he's living in sin in open rebellion against the moral standards for believers clearly set forth in Scripture. Now let me ask you this morning, does any of that sound familiar? I mean, we've said all the way through this letter, as it was, so it is. This letter is so relevant to where the church is even today. Because we're dealing with the same issue of professing Christians and church members living in various forms of open sin, public immorality that is never confronted. Their sin is never addressed. It's allowed to go on and they're allowed to continue participating in the church as if everything is just fine. And Paul says in this passage, that is not fine. That's not okay. In fact, something is seriously wrong when there is public sin within the church, open sin within the church among the membership, and the church does nothing to address it. Paul says that's got to change. And in this chapter, Paul lays out for us how the church is to deal with brothers and sisters in Christ who get off into the weeds, who lose their way and find themselves back in that old life of sin that they once lived before they ever came to know Jesus as their Savior. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of stuff here in these 13 verses. When I was planning my preaching calendar and sitting down and looking at uh, our journey through 1 Corinthians, I looked at chapter 5, 13 verses. I thought, I think I could handle 13 verses in one setting. And so I planned one morning to deal with these 13 verses. And then I began to unpack these 13 verses and realized that I was way over my head. There is way too much here to deal with adequately and to try to do it in one setting. That would be like trying to drink from a fire hydrant this morning. We'd all drown. Instead, it has to be broken up. When I was looking at this text, I thought initially I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about the process and and what the New Testament talks about and says about the process for dealing with believers who are living in sin. How does the church do that? And the, the, the New Testament lays out for us clearly a pattern and a process for doing that. But before we ever deal with the process and the how of dealing with sin in the church, I think it's important for us to stop for a few moments and talk about the why. Why deal with the sin present within the church? Why is this such a big issue? Why was Paul making such a big deal over this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? 
Because until you understand the why, the how will never apply. You'll never get to the how until you understand the why. And this church had never gotten to the why of dealing with sin within its ranks. In fact, here is a church that is actually boasting about its open-mindedness and the things that were allowed to go on in the church. When Paul writes this letter, he's not just shocked that a sin of this magnitude is present within the congregation. He's more shocked that there are no signs of disapproval. There's no concern among the members. Instead, he says, the members, you seem to be puffed up about this. You seem as if you're boasting about this. And you can only imagine some of the things that they may have been saying or some of the things they may have been thinking. Perhaps they were boasting about just how open-minded they were as a church. Or just how tolerant they were as a church. Or perhaps they were even boasting about how loving they were as a congregation. That we're not a judgmental people at all. We don't judge anybody. It doesn't matter what you're doing, we're not going to judge you. And usually when people look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and they talk about church discipline and addressing sin in the life of members of the church, that's usually the first place they run. Well, I see what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 5, and yeah, 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 but what about Jesus? Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. That's one of the verses that is so often taken out of context. Jesus did say that, but when Jesus said that, he was talking about when we impose our own personal biases and our own self-righteous opinions on others without cause, judging them when we have no basis to do so. And so to try to illustrate that for you, let me just give you an example. I hope this works. There are some people in the church who have a very strong opinion that a believer should not drink beverage alcohol, that you just should stay far, as far away from it as you possibly can. And you can go to the Bible, and those people can make a very strong and convincing argument for their position. But then on the other hand, you have people who believe, well, you know, it's okay. It's okay to have a drink every once in a while. It's all right to have a glass of wine at dinner. There's nothing wrong with that. And they too could go to Scripture and they could use the Bible to, to justify their opinion and their stance on the issue. Now what would be wrong is if I, as a person who don't drink, looked at someone who had a glass of wine every once in a while and said, well, obviously because they drink alcohol, they're not saved. They're not, they're, they're not a believer because look at them. I'm afraid they're going to hell. That would be judging someone based on maybe my convictions. It would also be wrong for the person who drinks to look at me and say, well, he doesn't drink. He's just a self-righteous Pharisee. You don't know my story. You don't know why I have the opinion that I have about alcohol. So you would be heaping judgment on me that is unfair. You see what I'm talking about? That's what Jesus was talking about. But what we're talking about here are things that are clear. And so no matter what you believe about drinking alcohol every once in a while, whether you are someone who believes you shouldn't do it or one who believes, you know, a, a glass of wine or a drink every now and then is okay, the one thing we should commonly agree on is what the Bible says about drunkenness. Drunkenness is wrong. Drunkenness is a sin. And the Bible's clear about that. There's no gray area in that. 
The Bible is also very clear about marriage. The Bible is clear about sex. The Bible says that sex was created by God, but it was created by God for the relationship between a man and a woman in the covenant relationship of marriage. And anything outside of that is sinful in the eyes of God. So that would include homosexuality. That would include fornication. You know what fornication is? It's having sex before you get married. It would also include adultery. Adultery would be to be married to someone, but then in a sexual relationship outside that marriage. All of those things are out of bounds. All of those things are wrong. And the Bible is crystal clear about that. So we're not talking about gray areas here. We're talking about things that the Bible is clear on. And the Bible was clear about this man and his sin, that what he was doing was absolutely wrong. And yet the church had turned its head to that sin. And it had, had just gone on with things like everything is just fine and Paul just can't understand it. What Paul is saying to the church is this, how can you be so accepting of a behavior that God condemns? How can you treat as nothing that which God has declared to be unacceptable and sinful behavior among his people? Rather than boasting and being proud, you should be grieving over this. Your heart should be broken, and you should be deeply concerned over this man's sin and its impact and influence upon the church. But that wasn't there. And you would be hard-pressed to find that kind of attitude in a lot of churches today. There is not a lot of grieving over sin anymore in the church. Not in our own personal lives, and not in the body of Christ collectively. Instead, we've sort of become numb to sin. There's not much that shocks us anymore in this world about the things people do and the moral choices that people make. Instead of being surprised, we just see sinful behavior as the norm these days. And that's not just how we look at the world. That's even how we look at others in the church. And oh, how we need God to change our hearts so that we're once again broken and grieved over the presence of sin in our own lives and within the body of Christ. And that's why it's important to take a few moments this morning and talk about why it is that sin should grieve us so. Why should we be so burdened about this? Why was Paul so burdened about this? Why was this such a big issue with Paul? And it is a major issue in this letter that Paul has been building up to. I think, I think deep in my heart, this is one of the things that Paul was just, he, he wanted to get to this as fast as he could, but he had to deal with some other things and build up to this. But this was a major issue. And Paul says, why is it that your hearts aren't broken? Your heart should be broken. And here's why our hearts should be broken over sin. First of all, they should be broken because of our concern and our love for those who are living in sin and knowing what sin does in, to the life and in the life of the person who's living in it. Don't you understand? It, it is true that if you are truly saved, if you really are a child of God, there is nothing that you can do that will lose your salvation. I believe that with all my heart. But that does not mean that a person who is a child of God living in sin has nothing to lose. There is a lot to be lost when a person lives in sin. For the child of God, the first thing that comes to mind is the loss of intimacy and the loss of fellowship with Christ. 
I've already established that it won't change your relationship with God, but it does affect your fellowship with God. God is light, and those who are going to walk in fellowship with God must walk in the light, but to walk in sin is to walk in darkness, and light and darkness have nothing to do with one another. And so when a person chooses a life of sin, they're choosing to walk away from intimacy with God in order to live a life of sin. And with that loss of intimacy with God comes the loss of joy in a believer's life and the loss of peace in a believer's life because our peace and joy come from Christ and being in fellowship with Christ. And if you want to know what that looks like, just take some time and go back and read Psalm 32 and read Psalm 51, which were Psalms of David, which he wrote after he had repented of his sin with Bathsheba. But in those Psalms, he describes what his life was like as a man who knew God, but he was out of fellowship with God because he was living in sin and he wouldn't confess his sin. He wouldn't repent of it. He says, listen, it was like I was withering up. I was dying on the inside. My sin was killing me. There was no joy in my life. I had no peace in my life. And he longed for it to return. But it would not return until he repented of his sin and would return to fellowship with Christ, with God. And that's the way it is with every believer. Listen, Listen, any believer can commit any sin that any other person in this world could commit, but the difference in those who are children of God and those who are not is that you can't live in sin any longer and be content and enjoy yourself because the Spirit of God in you will be grieved by your sin and your life will be a wreck and you will be miserable until that is made right. And not to mention the fact that sin always leads to destruction. It always leads to death. And so in addition to being out of fellowship with God, there are all these tragic consequences that come along with sin for those who persist in it. They're inevitable. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. And if we know all of this to be true, we believe all of this to be true, how can a community filled with the Spirit of Christ and the love of Christ be okay with sitting idly by and doing nothing while one of their own is living out of fellowship with Christ Himself and on a path that would ultimately end in devastating consequences for that individual? Listen, for anybody in the church to bow up to the idea of of correction and discipline in the church and the need for it, that is a sign of great spiritual immaturity. Listen, when I was growing up, I didn't like discipline either. I thought my parents were the meanest people on the earth whenever they would punish me or correct me for things that I did that were wrong. I didn't understand why, why be so mean? Why all the rules? Why are you doing this? It just didn't register with me. But you see, my parents knew more than I knew. And my parents knew that if they, did not, if they did not correct my behavior now, it was going to lead to greater consequences in my life later on. And so the reason they disciplined me was not because they hated me, it was because they loved me. And it wasn't until I got a lot older and became a lot more mature that I could, I could look back on that and say, now I get it, now I understand. And that's the way it is for the child of God. Listen, listen, nobody enjoys 
correction and discipline, but it is a necessary thing in our life because any one of us can get off in the weeds if we're not careful. And you want people in your life who love you and care about you, who will help you stay out of the weeds and stay on the right path. And when you fall down, help you get back up and get back where you should be in your relationship with Jesus. It's the most loving thing we could do for each other in the body of Christ. The second reason why this should grieve us is because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Paul talks about in this passage, and we won't drill down deep this morning because we don't have time, but Paul talks about in this passage a reference to the Passover, and he refers to Christ as our Passover, our Passover lamb. And what he's doing is he's drawing back on Old Testament imagery back when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. They were slaves. They were oppressed by Pharaoh. In bondage there, but then God raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses and sent him into the land to bring his people out. But what, what ultimately broke Pharaoh's hold over the people and set the people free was the night when the death angel came through the land of Egypt. And God instructed the people through Moses to take a lamb and to sacrifice the lamb and then to take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the doorpost of the house so that when the death angel came through and he saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over that home and those inside would be saved. They would be spared. And so that happened. And after the death angel came through, after Passover, Pharaoh let the people go and, and Moses led them out of Egypt, but he led them out of Egypt into this promise of a new life now that God was going to give them and all of this is a glorious picture of our salvation because we were a people in bondage in bondage to Satan in bondage to sin but God sent a deliverer whose name is Jesus into the world and he is not only our savior he is also the Passover lamb he is the one who came and gave his own life so that by his blood Satan's hold on our life could be broken and we could be set free and brought out of our old life of sin and into a new life that Christ now has given us. And think about the absurdity when you read the Old Testament story of the Israelites, all the abs absurdity of the Israelites coming out of bondage and then at times turning back around and looking at Egypt and thinking, boy, I wish I could go back there. Have you forgotten what life was like back there? Have you forgotten what it was like to be a slave? But yet it's even more absurd for the child of God who's been set free by the blood of Jesus to ever want to go back to that old life of sin because Christ has brought us out of that and he has called us to something better. I tell you, I, I've, I've been in Egypt. I know what it's like. I know what my life was like in that old life of sin. And life with Jesus is so much better. It's so much more wonderful. Why would you ever want to go back there? Jesus died to set us free from that, to deliver us from that. And it should grieve our hearts anytime we see one who claims to know Jesus going back into that old life of slavery and sin 
and forsaking and abandoning the joy of this new life that we have been given in Christ, it should break our hearts. As we think about and remember what Jesus Christ did for us to deliver us from that. Third reason why this should grieve us is because of the threat that sin poses to others in the church. Not just what it does to the one caught in it, but what it can do to others as well. Paul says in this passage, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, meaning that if sin's not addressed and removed, it will spread. It will begin to affect other parts of the body. When immorality, when uh, sin is ignored in the church, unaddressed by the church, it sends the message throughout the membership that though we may profess to believe the Bible, we don't necessarily believe it's important to practice what it says. A church that doesn't encourage strongly believers to live faithfully and obediently to the Lord in all aspects and areas of life is sending the message that God's commands are just merely suggestions. That His will is optional, that our obedience is unimportant, and that it's unnecessary, and that's simply not true. It also is a stumbling block to the weaker and more immature believer within the church who doesn't understand if Christ died to bring me out of the old life, then why are we so content? Why are others so content still living in it? And why does that not bother anybody? Maybe this is just all talk. And maybe it really doesn't matter how we live. And then think about the impact on the younger generation. Think about the children and the youth who grow up hearing the Bible taught in church. But it's not lived out or practiced by those around them. Think about the conflicting message that that sends. It's like a child growing up in a home where there are rules, but then you just continually break the rules, and then nothing ever happens because of that. And eventually the child begins to think, well, the rules don't matter. They don't apply. And so what seems to be just a small thing in the beginning just begins to grow until the child is full out in a life of rebellion because there was never any correction and never any discipline in that child's life. They were never taught the consequences of disobedience. And listen, that's exactly the thing that happens in a church where there is no correction and there is no discipline and there, and there is no accountability when it comes to sin within our ranks. And is it, is it any wonder today that we've raised up a generation who came up out of church and have now abandoned the church because they have seen these conflicting messages and they've gone back out into a world of sin and their lives are full of loneliness and brokenness and they are confused and they are searching more than they ever have been, but they don't know where to look anymore because nothing ever seems to make sense to them. And the church has been a part of that. Because we preach one thing and we practice another. And so it, why, it's why it matters. It, 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 it should grieve us. Fourth reason why it should grieve us is because of our desire for the blessing and the favor of Christ to be upon our lives and upon His church. And the favor and the blessing of God will not rest upon a church that does not take His Word and does not take sin seriously. I've got a lamp in my office. It is in the counseling area of my office, and there's a door that goes into the, the study area of my office. And that lamp has been there since we moved in several years ago. 
It sits on the table right there next to the door. It's a beautiful lamp. I didn't pick it out. didn't have anything to do with the, de the, the decor, but it's a beautiful lamp that sits on the table. looks very nice. But you know, in all these years, I never turned the thing on. Never turned it on. And I realized that the other day. I was in my office. I was walking through. It was dark, and I thought, I've never turned that lamp on. I think I'll turn the lamp on. And so then I reached underneath there, and I turned the switch, and guess what? It didn't come on. Not a thing happened. And then I began to wonder why. I looked, and there's still a, there's a bulb there in the lamp. Why didn't the lamp come on? You know why the lamp didn't come on? Because it wasn't plugged in. It had never been plugged in. It's plugged in now, but it wasn't plugged in then. And so I had a beautiful piece of furniture that sat there that was unable to do what it was created to do. Listen, the lamp was not created just to sit there and be a, a nice piece of furniture. The purpose of the lamp, when you get down to it, the purpose of the lamp is to do what? It is to give off light. But the lamp can't give off light if it's not connected to the source of power. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. There's a lot of things that we do in church that may sound good and they may look good. We may play music beautifully in this church. We may sing wonderfully. We may have the best singers on the planet. We may have great teaching, great preaching. We may have great ministries in the church, but none of it means a thing if the church is not empowered to do the very thing that it was created to do, and that is to exalt the name of Jesus Christ and bring glory to God. And the church cannot exalt the name of Jesus, and it cannot bring glory to God if it's not connected to the source of power. And you can't be connected to the source of power if you are living in open sin and rebellion against God or tolerating it and allowing it to go on unaddressed. It just won't happen. People are wondering, why is God not moving in our churches? Why is this not happening in our churches? Why are we not seeing God do something in our churches? Maybe it's because we got a lot of pretty things going on in the church. We're just disconnected from the source of power. And that should break our hearts. It should break our hearts to just come here and think that we're just going through the motions. But we're never going to see God move. God's never going to move in our church. He's never going to move like we want Him to in our church until we connect to the source of power. And that means that we've got to deal with sin. We've got to take this seriously. Then the last thing is this. The reason why we should be grieved over this is because our desire to see nothing hinder or distract from the proclamation of the gospel. One of the reasons why the church today is so ineffective in reaching people in the world with the gospel is because people look at the church and see those in the church who profess to know Christ living in sin, and then they look at their own life and they just can't tell a real difference. Our membership roles, our Sunday services are filled with members who are living a lifestyle of drunkenness, idolatry, fornication, adultery, members abandoning their spouses without cause, but still showing up on Sunday, and everybody acts like this is normal behavior, even for someone who knows Christ. And at the same time, we're preaching a message to people about a Savior who can change their life. And for the world, it just doesn't register. I mean, it doesn't add up. 
because the world doesn't see a change in us. People just don't get it. And on top of that, we can inevitably become guilty or give the appearance of preaching, preaching a, a gospel that requires no repentance. We end up sending a message to the world that it doesn't matter what you do. Just, just pray the prayer. See, if you pray the prayer, you get the card, you become a part of the club, we'll baptize you as an initiation. And then you're one of us. But you don't have to change. Nothing in your life has to change. You just keep living the way you've been living. And as ridiculous as that sounds, that's the message that we've given. Because for many of us, that's how we're living. I want to be clear this morning that Jesus will save anybody. There's not anybody in this room that Christ will not save. But to, say, to be saved, for you to receive His gift of salvation, you must repent. You know what repentance is? Repentance is not saying, well, you know, I'm, I guess I probably shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is a turning away. It's a turning away from one's life of sin, and it's turning to Christ and making the decision to follow Him. Now, it doesn't mean that your life is going to be perfect. But it means that you have altered, you've altered the course. You've changed direction. You were once going the way of sin. You've chosen not to go that way anymore. That, that, that doesn't work. You know where that leads? That leads to destruction. That ultimately leads you straight to hell. Now, I don't want to go to hell. And I don't want my life to be destroyed because of sin. So I'm going to turn away from that. And I'm turning to Christ. And I'm going to follow Him into this new life that He has, he has, he has promised me. The life that he died in order that I might have. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow Jesus. And yes, you are going to fall down along the way. And you'll get tripped up from time to time. But you're going in the right direction now. And the good news is that in the church, you're not going it alone. God is with you. His Spirit is there to help you. But also you've got believers who are there in your life. So that when you fall down, they help you get back up. And when you begin to veer off course, they're there to help you get back on course. And they're not doing it because they're judgmental people. They're not doing it because they want to stick their nose in your business. They're doing it because that's what's being a part of a Christian community, a loving community in Christ is all about. And every believer should welcome that in his or her life. I need that. You need that. We all need that. And if we can't welcome that, then something is seriously wrong with us. Why would I not want people in my life? If I'm serious about following Jesus, why would I not want people in my life who are there to help me and encourage me along the way so that I stay on course in this crazy, messed up world that we're living in? Amen? There's nothing unloving about this text at all. It is full of love. And it's necessary. And it's needful in the church today. If you were encouraged by today's sermon, leave us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church Martin, visit fbcmartin.org.